Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Miles Irving, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you the conversation that I had this week with Mark Lewis. That'll that'll be on shortly. Um, and Mark has been a real inspiration to me, um, just with the level of participation that he embodies, both with the landscape where he is and all of the plants um, and other species that he's working with as wild foods, and the way that he's presenting that information or, or, or his personal knowledge uh, to other people and trying to share it and spread it and, and enhance uh, the, the, the culture around wild foods in Arizona and also in the way that he's participating in his own Native American heritage um, and practicing harvesting methods that go back thousands of years and keeping those traditions alive where he is. Um, and the real thing that, that brought, it, brought it all together for me was right at the end of my conversation with him, I asked him about whether he had a website and he says that he's too busy harvesting and uh, processing the wild stuff that he's, that he's working with there um, to build a website. And I just thought that was fantastic and also a, a great challenge to me because um, I'm conscious of the fact that I spend far too much time doing other things um, when, uh, especially this time of year, there's, there's so much out there that um, I could be working more with. And... I guess the uh, the thing there is uh, for me. I mean, just to share something personal, I'm I'm transitioning from being a, a person that's kind of driven by a sense of what I should and ought to be doing uh, to a sense that there's an invitation to participate and to belong, um, which is much less uh, of a drive <laughs> and more of a just a sort of a, a wonderful flow and opportunity so you know mark's conversation um i just feel i just feel that call to to get more involved and um to just be able to enjoy you know the the the, the um experience of participating more and i would invite everybody else that's that's listening to me you know that um the same the same is true for you wherever you are there are wild plants that are beckoning you um to uh, involve them in, in your diet. There's things that you can use, you can dry and, and make teas out of. There's salads that you can eat. And just one particular example, if, if you live in the British Isles or, or elsewhere in a temperate zone where stinging nettles grow, um, where we are now, they're just beginning to um, come into seed, as I mentioned briefly last week, and those seeds are ripening. They're an amazing, just overall, boost to your system. They're, they're kind of a mild stimulant. Um, they're an adaptogen, which means that they help the whole of your body work and flourish better. Um, so, and, and as I jokingly say, on some of my wild food walks, stinging nettles are probably the only edible wild plant in the British Isles that you can reliably identify in the dark because you know, if it doesn't sting you, it's not a nettle. So you'll know that um, there's no issues around misidentification there. It's just, just knowing what the seeds are. They're the sort of fat, slightly angular things drooping down. At the same time, the male flowers at the moment are looking rather th thin in comparison. They've shed their pollen, um, so they're easy to distinguish. And you can harvest those and dry them and use them for the whole year. And also just another thought about participation. You know, it's easy to uh, contrast what it is to um, have a kind of knowledge of your surroundings, which is the kind that other species have and which uh, um, hunter-gatherer cultures 
also have and and our ancestors um, were would have had in the past, and that is that to know your surroundings is to participate and be involved in the systems of life. It is to actually engage with the molecules of plants that grow where you live um, by eating them and making them part of your own body and making the cycles of life part of your own personal story and memories and part of your own culture. Um, we can see there's another kind of knowledge which is um, much more abstract and it tends to actually put a, a gap, a division or a barrier between us and our surroundings. Um, so mechanization is always something that decontextualizes. It uses a method that doesn't require local conditions. It's, it's a machine that just does the same thing wherever you are every time. Um, and things like money and um, the mechanized approach to agriculture that, that reduces an ecosystem to a, a mechanical process that produces just one crop from an area. And then the industrialized process of factories processing food. All of these things have put massive divisions between us and the cycles of life. And then you can look at how technology is now doing the same thing with social life. You know, we send a text message or put something on Twitter and we don't look into somebody's eyes to communicate. We don't feel the uh, emotional response that they have to what we say because they're not physically present and so on. So in all of these ways, the machines um, decontextualizing us uh, on the basis of a kind of knowledge which is abstract, you know. But I just like to think that there's a way that we all participate in our surroundings and it's maybe a metaphor or just a, a starting point because whenever we breathe, we're just breathing in the molecules from where we are and that's that's something that's um, just inevitable unless you're underwater breathing from a tank or in an oxygen tent. Um, you're always going to be breathing in the molecules from where you are. So that's a way of participating and belonging that, that still um, remains and has yet to be uh, mechanized. Um, that's that's a, a, an encouraging thought. Um, okay, so now I'm going to get on and just introduce our guests to the podcast, and uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation with Mark Lewis. So I'd like to welcome Mark Lewis to our podcast. Mark is uh, a forager from Arizona, and... He is an amazing practitioner of wild food. He uses a substantial amount of wild food in his personal diet, and um, he spends most of the rest of his time basically educating other people through the instrumentality of a farmer's market where he does a stall. He does sell a few things there because people can't work out what he's doing there if he doesn't, and he's running courses and really helping to expand the culture of the uh, gathering and use of these plants in Arizona. And I think he's, he's also, as we'll hear, got a lot of thoughts about some of these plants being cultivated and being mainstream foods. Um, but Mark's going to explain all that much better than I can. So I'll just say hello, Mark, and let's go. Hello. So, mate, you have this uh, very enviable position that you um, learned a massive amount of uh, wild food information from your grandfather, who also learned a great deal from, from his grandfather. Um, I wonder if we could just kick off with you talking about your family history in that regard and, uh, and just tell us the story of, of wild food in, in, the, in the Lewis family. <laughs> well, the grandfather's family is the Alcala family from... Baja California Norte in Mexico and uh, my father was in the military so we ended up in the Pacific for 
for the time when I was uh, in school until high school when we came back to the back to the U.S. And uh, so, except for those years, uh, pretty much. I mean, you go out, you you learn what the stuff is, and you you engage with it, and you rely on it. And uh, so now, uh, older, I have to admit it, it came as kind of a shock. Uh, whereas you used to be able to go to the grocery store, and there, some of these things were still considered common food. Uh, you, you could find the barrel cactus candy from, made from the fruit of the barrel cactus fruit. Uh, the, you could find that at a grocery store. That's a regular thing. Lechuguilla would be sold. That's a beverage. That would be sold in the refrigerator compartments. Um, nopales. I mean, it's just all these different things. And these and, would have been wild harvested? They, they, they weren't just native plants that have been cultivated. They were actually wild harvested products? Uh, we're going to get into this harvested versus wild thing in a second, but um, some of them were cultivated and some of them were uh, wild harvested. Uh, but all were considered regular fruit foods. Um, a lot of the plants are actually weeds <laughs> that modern you know cultivation spends a lot of time trying to get rid of. Uh, and now people look at those as poor people food. So people don't want that stigma, you know, of eating the poor people food that used to be regular food. My whole take on it, uh, a couple of different points. All of these foods, and, and here in Arizona, we've got uh, about 2,500 different ingredients from about 500 or so plants and about 50 mushrooms. Um, all of these things are just items that didn't get popularized by the first Colombian exchange. You've heard of the Colombian exchange. Well, presumably that's when plants started coming back to Europe that have been found in the, in the new colonies. Right. So things that like Italian cuisine would be nothing without tomatoes, but tomatoes originally come from here. Mm. Uh, sunflowers, Russia's whole economy used to run on sunflowers. Uh, they come from here. Mm. Uh, pretty much everything everybody eats nowadays, you, if you have a hamburger, you've got tomatoes on there, you've got french fries that are made with potatoes, uh, I mean, you have a chocolate milkshake. The chocolate comes from here. The strawberries came from here. The vanilla came, came from here. Corn, beans, squash. I mean, you run down this list. Uh, chili peppers, all of it comes from here. Um, and the foods that I'm trying to educate people about, uh, what are called foraged foods here, uh, are just other members that, somehow did not get dragged over there, uh, didn't get taken into the limelight of the, the world uh, uh, cuisine, you know, the foodstuffs. But they're still here. Yeah. And, and people have been eating them for a long, long time. Nobody forgot. Uh, 
though they do have a stigma now uh, because if people are like, well, you can just go to the store, so why bother, right? Um, but recently they started a lot of these things that were available and still known by everybody, they've started to disappear from the stores. Um, nobody knows what they are. Everybody thinks at the farmer's market, everybody thinks they're dangerous. I've had people say to me, it's a shame. I have that all over my yard. It's a shame. It's poisonous. <laughs> and I just have to, like, where did you hear this? Where? Who told you? Yeah. Um, that it was poisonous. Um, we have chefs who will tell you that it, there's nothing to forage. I mean, what 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 are, what are we doing? Um, there's nothing to forage. And I just said, well, I don't know who told you that, but year-round here, uh, there are things to go out and get. Uh, pretty much spend the whole year, uh, 12 months of the year, either harvesting or processing so you've got some shelf life, um, the stuff that's here. It, it's a really a wasted gift. And I, so, I mean, that was one of the things that... I mean, when got, it's not harvested, it's a wasted gift when people don't harvest it. Well, the birds sure like it. Yeah. <laughs> They're not starving. Um, but we do have people here who who are not making ends meet and I don't I hate the idea there are certain conservative politicians that say well there's all that food out there they could just go you know get it the, the poor people I don't like that but it is true that there's a lot of food out there and it's good food and it's nutritious food and it's delicious food um, we've We've got this situation where common things that could be everyday things that are at least as good as the tomatoes that you get in the store. Right? We've got these things called wolf berries. They're, they're the same as goji berries. Yeah. We have eight species of them right here in southern Arizona that are available every month except for December in a normal year and it, people could go out and and get these things uh, but no it's more important it's more more stylish to go to a grocery store and pay thirty dollars for this you know this cup of goji berries when you could have gotten them <laughs> out their weeds out in the alley um <laughs> i just a lot of things are are upside down here, and uh, is it is it all is it all like an uphill struggle there, Mark? Because what, what? No, I've I think I've I found some chefs yeah. that this is worth working with um, with them on. We do have the problem of the Instagram chefs uh, who who want to be seen to be foraging because that's popular now and they'll sprinkle essentially lawn clippings on top of something and say, look, we foraged this and yeah. here are the names, the names of the weird ingredients. It's, it's the weirding of our food. Basically they, they're, 
they're saying, I'm the chef, I'm the only one with the skills to identify these dangerous products and, and get them in a form that you can eat safely. So please come and pay $900 for my wine dinner. <laughs> we do have that problem. <laughs> um, but there are some chefs who are actually trying to do this. And uh, Brian Konefall up in Flagstaff was one of these. I'm understanding that maybe you'll have him as a guest sometime. And a lot of people are genuinely interested in these things. And there are a couple of uh, community gardens now where people are starting to regrow these things. The wolfberries are one. Um, purslane is another. There's purslane in, in England, right? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't do particularly well in my county because it's not very tolerant of frost. Um, oh. I had a funny story with that though. That the, um, the in in England we have quite a good system of recording the plants, and in each county there's a guy that's in charge of that. So the county recorder for Kent, who was recording all the species, um, I went to his house and asking him about the location of, of you know is this species here or not, and we got onto the subject of common purslane. He said it's actually only recorded in one place in Kent. I said, would you be willing to tell me where that is? He said, yeah, follow me. And he went into his back garden. <laughs> he had it growing between the cracks and the pavement in, in his back garden, where for some reason it was a, it was a, it was a, um, it was a sort of trap there of, of warmth and, and the frost never affected this part. Huh. Anyway, so other than that, we do, we do have it growing on some organic farms where it's under the polytunnels. Uh, but there, I think it's just a relic of cultivation, but, um, I'm, I'm familiar with it. I wish there was more of it in Kent. Yeah. Well, then keep your fingers crossed for global warming. Mm. <laughs> You'll yeah. have vineyards up in England again. <laughs> so you're, you're managing to accomplish a certain level of good cheer with regard to uh, global warming, Mark, I sense. Um, it, it, we started noticing in 2007, um, and we predicted that uh, the year would come when there would be no winter. Uh, people don't. People who aren't from Arizona don't think we have a winter, but we do, uh, and we know it because we pay attention to what the plants are doing. And uh, we predicted back in 2007, based on the trends we were seeing, the changes we were seeing with the the phenology, the beginnings, you know, the startings and stoppings of of leafing out and fruiting and flowering and everything. We predicted back then that in 2018, in the winter, there would be no winter. And we were wrong. Uh, there was no winter in 2017. <laughs> but what it's meant for us is some of the most incredible bounty we have ever seen. Um, we're seeing plants that are so confused. Uh, they're having fruitings, you know, flowerings and fruitings two and three times a year. Uh, ridiculous times, uh, times that are impossible. Uh, we're seeing. Uh, so, for example, graythorn. Graythorn is a distant relative of sea buckthorn and a closer relative of the jujube, the red date. It's uh, Zizifus, I think the species of, 
obtusifola or something like that. Um, anyway, graythorn uh, used to be a fall-time fruiting plant. We now have it fruiting in the spring and the fall. Uh, our palm trees that uh, live here uh, three times a year instead of uh, it used to be once and then it became twice and now it's three times a year they're fruit. Uh, mesquite uh, always used to be two times a year now we have sometimes continuous fruiting beginning in the spring all the way through the fall. Mammillaria cactus, these tiny little cacti. I sent you pictures of all these things by the way. We'll be able to put uh, like a gallery or something on the, on the uh, podcast page so people can see them. Yeah, the Mammillaria cactus uh, used to be summertime uh, flowering and then fruiting later in December. Uh, this year we had fruiting in December and April and in the summertime. Wow. Uh, so the plants are adjusting. We see it. Uh, there's no getting around it. Whatever the cause may be or whatever whatever you want to call it, global warming or climate change or whatever, right now it means bounty for us. Yeah. Uh, our, our concern was, uh, because a lot of things are timed very, very precisely here. Uh, we, For example, the, the saguaro cactus, they are pollinated primarily by bats. Yeah, you uh, sent a picture of that. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, the long-nosed bat. He, he comes up from Mexico, um, and he's on a schedule. <laughs> and he's up here just for the summer, and then when the flowers are gone, he, he heads back down. So it's, it's kind of a, a precise uh, timing. Uh, it turns out that the saguaro is actually spending a lot of its energy advertising for these bats. And they're drinking the nectar, is that right? Right, and the nectar um, is... It's it really interesting, the, the uh, chemistry of this nectar, because it's got special kinds of sugars in it, um, and it, they also show up in the fruit, So because the bats are also a big distributor of the fruit, um, the seeds and stuff. So the, uh, the, this cactus is actually manufacturing a bunch of sugars, these gallant galactronic acids I can't say that um, anyway they're, they're special sugars that are uh, they lock onto the taste receptors of three kinds of mammals uh, this is really for me this is fascinating this is one of the most amazing things uh, the saguaro cactus did not grow up uh without the Otan people that have been here forever. And uh, the other thing that they rely on are rodents and bats. And it turns out that these mammals, and it turns out that these sugars are extremely attractive to humans and, well, primates and rodents and bats. And just recently I read, this was about a year ago, I read the genetic studies, they've been figuring out, you know, which mammals are the most closely related. They're, they're kind of juggling the, the taxono taxonomic tree. Yeah. And it turns out that there's a branch of mammals 
that is separate from almost all the other mammals, and it's made up of three different groups. What groups do you suppose those are? It's got to be the three you've just mentioned, right? Exactly. And I just, I was like, whoa. <laughs> this, this, so I, the guy who did the study, I sent him, <clears throat> I sent him this thing, uh, and I said, did you know <laughs> that, that there are, you know, three groups that are attracted to these special sugars? So he, and that's, I guess that's another form of evidence that suggests that they're correct about their taxonomic yeah. arrangement. Um, did it get back? I, I haven't, other than a thank you, I haven't heard a whole lot else. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the, the cacti, we've got the saguaro cactus, we've got the cardone, which is even huger. I sent you one picture uh, of the cardone. Everything else in this, the big cactus pictures are the saguaros. And um, the... Uh, the saguaros and the cardone and the old man cactus and the organ pipe cactus are in one little branch of the cactus family and they're all competing with each other for these uh, these bats and these rodents and it's like an arms race which one can be the most attractive for the longest period of time uh, we don't usually people don't usually think of plants as competing with each other uh, so the restaurants are all competing to be the best restaurant in the world and these cactuses are competing to be the best cactus in the world so that they get get more bats more humans and right more <laughs> and so they've become more and more delicious um, the saguaro fruit has uh, chemically it's pretty amazing saguaro fruit uh, saguaro look like a lot of uh, other vertical cacti but the four cacti that I just mentioned, the old man and the Sunita, old man and Sunita are the same thing, Lophosirius. And uh, the uh, organ pipe uh, and the cardone and the saguaro, these four, uh, they have in their fruit, they have vanilla. They have a wow. chemical which is identical to vanilla. And then they have of all the cacti in their pulps, they have fat, a lot of fat, and other cacti don't do that. They don't have fat. And then they have these special sugars. So you've, you've got kind of this delicious, creamy, uh, tongue-rich kind of, of uh, fruit. It doesn't have a lot of pectin, so it, it doesn't gel up. It stays as a, a syrup. Uh, the seeds are full of omega-3, 6, 7, and 9, just like a salmon. Um, these are a really rich, rich food source. Um, and uh, basically, year by year, um, with the help of the bats and the people, uh, that's been the selection process. When I told you that I wanted to get back to the idea this, I think it's a false dichotomy that in in our area anyway. The idea of of uh, cultivated versus wild, right? Because when you get out into the desert, uh, not only are things like squash just I mean, people the native agriculture is such that it. 
the way they do it, it it's it, the way that the Tonga Otam and the Akinet Otam and the Pai and the Klonkak and everybody out there, they they plant things like squash and beans and corn out in the washes. So you're, you'll be walking along in the middle of the wilderness, which you think is the wilderness, and you'll come across a squash that weighs 100 pounds. But even beyond that, the, the fact that we have so many different kinds of wolfberries here. Uh, when I was in school, we learned that if you had one species ideally suited for one area, then you wouldn't have another species in that same area. And wolfberries give the lie to that, uh, around here anyway, because some of, sometimes you'll have in the shade of one wolfberry species another species of wolfberry. <laughs> they're, they're growing here extremely thickly. Uh, they, so they, they have... They're in the same ecological niche. Is that, is that what you're saying? They're, they're... I, they have to be identical. They're right. They're sitting in each other's shade. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're using the same resource. Um, we have uh, these trees called Palo Verde trees. And there are, we have a blue one and a yellow one and the Mexican one. And the yellow one uh, grows all the same places that the blue one grows. Okay. The blue one has longer thorns. It's its uh, pods are not as delicious. It had the blue one has uh, more spines. It's taller. Uh, the yellow one is more fruit, more pods uh, in a much shorter plant that has fewer spines. That thing has been selected. That's not a. I don't care. You look at that and, and you say, okay, everything that makes domestication what it is, is in this plant. People did this. People selected for these plants. We've got choya cacti. If you know what a regular choya cactus looks like, uh, by the way, choya season is in the spring, so we're, we're done with choyas now. Um, but the, the choyas... Uh, that humans go for have fewer spines, smaller spines, less nasty spines. The, the uh, flower buds and the fruit are bigger. Uh, the plants are shorter. Uh, everything, if, if I told you the difference between one kind of tree and another kind of tree and asked you which one was domesticated, it would be easy to say that the one that has the bigger, nicer, sweeter fruit uh, that has fewer spines and things like that's probably the domesticated one and out here out here in the desert that we have uh, the agaves uh, those are century plants Uh, we've got these palo verdes we've got the the choya cacti Uh, you run down the list and and things like the saguaro fruit um, the people did this the people selected for these things uh, year after year after year. And, I mean, they've only been here, you know, a million years. So <laughs> anthropologists told me that's impossible. There weren't people. But uh, I talked to my grandfather uh, and my aunties aunties and uncles, and and the consensus is that the Pai Pai people have been here for 52 million years because that's when the, the – uh, 
mockingbirds got here. So, because uh, Pai Pai people are mockingbird people. So, uh, when uh, the anthropologists, I thought it was really funny. The anthropologist said, well, tell, tell your auntie she, that's impossible. And she said, well, he doesn't know what it means to be a people. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, Can I just pick up on the on the on the basic point you're making there about people modifying the uh, indigenous plant species and, and right. So and the, the the desert that people think they're walking in is a man-made environment. Yeah, and the plants need us, and I mean to to help harvest them, or they're going to become really really rare i i can cite a bunch of examples but the easiest one is a yeah. thing called saya saya is a root and it used to be extremely common and now it's an endangered species and somebody said well we we you can't have people going out and taking it all because then it will become extinct and i said the reason it's becoming extinct is because nobody's out there taking it the yeah. <laughs> the root itself when you pull it up out of the ground it has these little root nodules and little tiny tiny pieces of plant that become dislodged as you're pulling it out so when you take one out you get six uh, we have plants where if you pinch off their flowers they come back with eight more flowers and and without people doing this without people taking care of the grasses there are 204 species of gra edible grass in Arizona, and the, it's almost wiped out. Uh, the grassland areas are almost completely gone. Uh, everybody looks at the desert and says, well, this is pristine. And I say, well, there are no grasses. <laughs> it's clearly not pristine. It, it was grazed, overgrazed in the 18, you know, the ends of the 1800s, and it hasn't come back yet. So what, um, was, the, what was the... um? What was the management that happened? What was the management of that uh, grass habitat and the use of the grasses that that was happening before, Mark? The original? Yeah. So these species that you're saying are edible, and they used to be there. And what? How were how were people managing those? And what what use were they making of them for food? Well, this area wasn't real big for fire. In California, they used fire a lot. Uh, to, you know, clear out brush so that the food plants would, would move in under the oak trees and things like that. We have those areas in Arizona. Arizona is pretty diverse. So there are spaces where it would be natively oak, pinyon pine, and uh, juniper, and then a lot of different kinds of grasses and yuccas and things like that. So we do have those areas. But other areas, especially as things have gotten warmer, and partly because of the disruption of the grazing back in the 1800s, uh, some areas that used to be grassland are not going to come back as grassland because too many other things have moved in from the other ecosystems. Um, so we'll probably never get it back to the way it was, but there's the reintroduction of the pronghorn antelope and the deer and the bighorn sheep 
are starting to make it possible for us to get a glimpse of what it was like with the bunch grasses that came up around the cacti. And uh, so those are things like uh, muley and galleta and uh, grandma grasses and things like that. Uh, those, those are things that you would have expected to see every few feet. Uh, they are necessary for the guild structure of the, the uh, plants here. Um, if you've ever heard of the three sisters, where you're growing things together in an intercropped fashion so you can get a better yield, uh, the corn, beans, and squash. Yeah. Yeah. yeah from the eastern United States. That, well, the three sisters around here were called the seven daughters of Owl. <laughs> and the seven daughters are the corns be corn, bean, and squash, but also the beeweed and the sunflower and the amaranth and the, the lamb's quarter. Uh, and those plants would grow together uh, in what's called a guild. It's kind of the opposite of animal guilds. When they talk about guilds in agriculture, they're talking about plants that grow together because they don't use the same nutrients. And so they're able to crowd each other. But they're here in the desert, what's so important about them, the guilds, is that they help each other in addition to improving uh, yield. So you always find cacti with their guild members. Cacti usually use uh, Palo Verde trees as nurse plants. Um, the Palo Verde trees uh, usually have to start in grass. <laughs> so what you get is a clump of cacti and Palo Verde trees and grass. And they essentially represent the corn, beans, and squash. If you think grass is a monocotyledonous plant, so is corn. Uh, a legume tree, the Palo Verde tree is a legume tree. That's a bean. And then a little bit different, but taking the role of squash is the cactus. And we see that everywhere we look, uh, the these different groupings of plants, there's always... Some kind of, um, and I've given these things names, uh, but uh, M, P, F, P, and M, O. You always get the three of them together. Um, but this is a wild group. In, in the wild. So you, you see these, these groups of plants. And so you can, just by looking at the groups of plants, you can tell what the soil is. You can tell what the water's like. You can tell uh, if you... If you see two, you look for the third one because uh, you know it's going to be there. And um, but it's it's so regular, and so many things are about this quote desert unquote are in favor of humans that I don't see how there's any getting around saying these things have been selected and we're in an environment that was built by people. Uh, again, they've only been here, people have only been here, super conservative estimate is 12,000 years. Uh, if you go over to California, uh, 
there are archaeologists that are saying 50,000 years. And then if you talk to the people themselves that have been here forever, uh, it's the, the getting away from taking care of the land that is making a lot of this stuff rare. It's not foraging that's making this stuff become extinct. Um, meanwhile, we've got the, the farmers digging up the, the soil, uh, killing off all of the stuff that, that has the super strong phytochemicals. Everybody says about the wild plants that they're super plants, superfoods, because they've got all the phytochemicals in there and they've got all of the, the different vitamins and trace minerals. And, and so what we're doing in replacing them is getting back a crop that since the 1970s has dropped in vitamin uh, value by 40%. I, I just look at that and I think, this is really stupid. You, you've got all these wild plants that could make you healthy and would treat the environment right and wouldn't have to be irrigated and wouldn't take all of these inputs. And on the other hand, <laughs> we've got we've got a bunch of vegetables and fruits that are supposed to be good for us, but they're actually dropping in in nutritional value because of the way we're treating the soil. It's uh, the soil around here. You you go out into the desert and you see what's called cryptogamic soil. It's made up of mosses and lichens. Um, some of the lichens take 250 years to regenerate once you destroy them. Um, everything starts in that cryptogamic soil. There, without it, you know nothing could get a foothold. Uh, and where it's preserved, you you see this lush desert, and where it's been scraped. Uh, and for agriculture, you've got a couple of good years, and then it's massive quantities of fertilizer and, and all this other stuff. And, and all through it, you've got to provide all of the water because most of the plants didn't come from here. Uh, they needed a little wetter than here. So, And then because of that, the situation with partly with the agriculture, but partly with the way that the valley here, especially in Phoenix, has been paved over, we have what's called a heat island, so that the the uh, regime of the climate, the the weather that used to be normal, uh, we don't see it in the city anymore, and the city is super hot. Um, it used to be, a friend of mine put it this way, she said, when we were little kids back in the 50s, uh, we used to be able to run from house to house in our bare feet, and now we can't do that because our feet will burn. Um, so the change in temperature is, is close to 20 degrees now, but if you get away from the city like I did at the Saguaro camp, uh, you have temperatures... Uh, in the, uh, I'm going to use the big word, crepuscular time. <laughs> so uh, evenings and mornings, as the sun's coming up and the sun's going down, uh, you have heat in the daytime, but the temperature changes and the winds come up. Uh, and if it's going to rain, this is these are the times it's going to rain. Uh, 
during the morning and the evening. And when I was a little kid, my grandpa used to tell us, um, you can't cut down the cactus because the cactus calls the rain, right? Uh, and um, I think it's interesting that there's a scientist at ASU who just recently came up with this idea that that uh, we need to keep the cactus and the legume forest because that's the thing that's attracting the rain. Here's the mechanism. My grandfather was called a, a stupid little brown nincompoop because of this crazy idea that the cactus calls the rain. But according to this scientist at ASU, uh, what's happening is the the uh, I'm going to get super geeky here. Is this okay? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Plants are, are divided up into three kinds. Uh, I should say uh, vascular plants are divided up into three groups uh, based on the kind of uh, carbon fixation that they do. Yeah. Some, cact some plants are what are called C3 plants. Yeah. Uh, C3 plants are the majority of plants, like 90-something percent. Uh, all around the world, plants use this this technique of uh, you know fixing the carbon with the Krebs cycle. Uh, so C3 plants, okay. But then apparently uh, two different kinds of uh, adaptations to that strategy for fixing carbon, for making food, storing energy, um, came along. And the first one, uh, evolutionarily, I understand is C. And C4 uh, is basically a way of shifting the the uh, the location of where the chemical reactions occur in the plants because they isolate part of the cycle in vacuoles. Okay, so they're changing the location uh, physically of the the uh, chemical reactions. And in doing so, the C4 plants are more drought tolerant. A lot of grasses are C4 plants. Um, some of our desert plants are C4 plants. Uh, but then a third way came along, uh, the CAM kind of uh, uh, carbon fixation, uh, Crassulacean. So... A group of plants like the jade plant apparently came up with this, but cacti also use this. Uh, and the legume trees actually use CAM. So what we're looking at here in the Sonoran Desert is a majority of plants in the ecosystem are using CAM. And what CAM does, uh, it makes it possible for the plant to shift a lot of the chemical uh, uh, work to nighttime so they're shifting it the time instead of the location they're shifting the time of the chemical reactions now why is this important and what has this got to do with the change in our climate uh, because the cacti and the legumes have all been ripped out uh, well here's here's here we go um, the cacti and the legume trees uh, have learned how to shift their their carbon fixation to nighttime. Well, when you do carbon fixation, you've got to open up your stomata. Stomata are the little windows 
yeah. all along the plants, leaves, and stems. A lot that, of breathing holes, right? That, the, the breathing holes of the plants. Well, the thing that was always a problem uh, when you breathe, when you open up, water goes out because in the hot, hot desert, if your stomata are open, you're losing water. And that's why a lot of C3 plants don't do well here because they basically dehydrate while they're trying to make food. But the cacti and the legume trees have solved this problem because they're doing it at night. They open up the stomata at night, uh, just, you know, at night, and they close them in the morning. So they're able to conserve water at the same time that they're making food. Part of the, the uh, carbon fixation cycle is happening in the daylight when they're bringing in the photons, and part of it is happening at night when they're actually exchanging gases and things like that. Uh, well, this has an effect on the climate, on the environment here, because when an entire forest of hundreds of thousands of acres of plants open up their stomata simultaneously uh, in the nighttime and in, in the beginning of the nighttime it creates a change in barometric pressure over a large area which creates wind so the wind that we're getting and the potential for you know changing a high to a low barometrically is all happening because of these forests of legume trees and cacti. And then in the morning, as the sun comes up, uh, the plants shut the stomata, and in shutting the stomata, we get a change in the barometric pressure, and we get winds that are blowing in the opposite direction. This is like an engine, a pump, that used to keep our area nice and cool, keep the temperature range uh, so it'd be cold at night and it'd be warm in the daytime but the, the temperatures never got to be the kind of heat island that we see now uh, in uh, you know 118 100 i think it was last year we had a high of 122 or something um 122 is what 50 50 degrees celsius um, and we just never used to see that. Well, that's because the entire city is devoid of these trees. And people are saying, well, we need to plant trees. But what they're thinking of is trees for shade. Yeah. Like, like the, all the trees from the East Coast that are going to take a whole lot of water. Mm -hmm. uh, and it won't get us the effect that we used to have. Uh, but here's my grandfather, you know, years and years and years ago saying, don't cut down the cactus because the cactus calls the rain. And that's exactly how it works. Um, so he basically had an insight into this system that, that back, back then the scientists weren't clever enough to know he was right. It's observational science for the last 50,000 years. I it's it's but a system. What he's basically observing there is is um is a self-regulating system, right? Which which has now been totally disrupted. But but all of the things that you're um talking about with with the landscape, um and the uh, including the involvement of people, is that there was a self-regulating system where people made use of the food, for example, 
that that kept the plants going. People. It was a self-regulated system made and and tended and guided by people. And we've gotten away completely from all the things that made everything work around here. And we don't seem to understand anymore that we're a very, very important part of how this thing works. Uh, we're like, we're like Buffalo <laughs> on the, on the prairie. I mean, or or prairie dogs or something we're we're the things that determine whether this system works yeah and that was always the role that the people had the people you know people are responsible for the earth that's the that's the message um and when you forage you you connect with that you go all the way back you you are doing what the people did so what was the language you just used there, Mark? You you said you said people are responsible for the earth. Yeah, Matiampkap. That's uh Pai Pai. That's uh language uh, grandfather's language. Okay. Um so it's it's like this is the role we're supposed to play. Yeah. We're integral. <laughs> we're supposed to forage, we're supposed to produce food, we're supposed to engage. And now it's stigmatized. That bothers me. That that bothers me a lot. Um, the the whole getting away from that desert. Um, it, it it's too easy now. And a couple of chefs taking pictures of themselves foraging. I don't know. That's that seems like a waste of time to me. But if I can get a bunch of chefs, which I think I've got, I've got six students for the summer. I'm taken out, and we're actually, you know, identifying, uh, learning sustainable harvesting. Uh, we're cooking with them. We're we're doing stuff uh, to get back to get back the stuff we had just a few years ago. Just a few years ago, I don't think it's too late. I think, uh, you know, it's it's just up to us. We're just going to have to do it. So, and I think there's there's um there is a hunger for this kind of stuff. Um, when I said earlier, are you um are you finding all an uphill struggle? Um, you know, I think I think there's a lot of people. Who may be living in urban environments, but but they have this sense that like there is something missing, and it is it is essentially a connection to land and and to other species. It it seems to me that there is um there is quite a lot of of that kind of hunger um, where people would accept as the uh, you know the answer to that. As being um, wild food, in in all of its implications, like not just that you eat something wild, but that you actually get out there and collect it, that you build a relationship with the the landscape and and the plants, and that you start finding that there's a relationship between you and other people around the collection of those things. You know, um, I I I feel optimistic because so many um, things that people are talking about. You know, but 
everybody's talking about complexity. Everyone's talking about connection. Everyone's talking about, um, you know, the essential relational quality of life and so on. And I just think that, that maybe um, people aren't, for now, because it's up to us to point it out to them, people aren't seeing that the logical conclusion of all of that, if everything is connected, blah, 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 um, is that um, we have to get back into these wild ecosystems as participants who, who are part of the food chain, um, that that will meet this philosophical hunger for us being woven into the fabric of life rather than being alien from it and separate from it. But it will also meet the, the, the hunger that people have for, for more robust and healthy food, you know, that people are aware that they want to put something in their body that makes them feel like they're connected to the earth. Uh, rather than they're connected to a machine, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Those, those are. I have a sense that things are moving to a place where a lot more people will be really up for engaging with this. We've, we've just got to kind of explain it and be there to be saying, "Hey, this is this is actually this is actually what you're looking for," kind of thing. <laughs> I just thought of something from Star Wars. <laughs> Star Wars. <laughs> these, yeah, Star Wars. These. These are the droids you're looking for. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm droids and plug-in plants. And, yeah. So what's your I, – I, uh, I saw something on the news this morning um, that France is um, – they're getting, they're getting ready to have some kind of super heat wave or something. And, and I was just wondering, uh, for us, the – the difference between daytime and, and nighttime temperatures are what we noticed that in the city, the nighttime temperatures used to drop down into the sixties. And now sometimes they're, you know, 96, 97, um, let me think 96, um, maybe 35 degrees Celsius. Um, so the, the temperature just does not drop like it used to. Are, are you guys seeing in Kent any changes, warmer or wetter or weirder? It's um, I haven't I haven't noticed really dramatic. I don't think we have the same clear changes that you're seeing there in Arizona, though. You know, I mean, in terms of the plants, there's there's one thing. Um, not just in Kent, but across the UK last year, we had the um, the uh, yarrow in flower in November and December, which was really freaky, and everyone was noticing it. Um, so that's that's one indicator of like warmer winter temperatures and a second a second life cycle um, for that. And also, there was a couple of cabbage family things coming out in in the middle of winter, which I wouldn't expect cabbage family flowers but i don't think we're seeing the same extremity that that you are certainly our winters are milder than they used to but uh, not quite as dramatic yet got some friends up in alaska and they're they had thunderstorms for the first time in history in the winter time so they were kind of freaked out by that
I wanted to just say, uh, or rather, explore the thing you're saying the false, the false um, dichotomy between agriculture and and wildness. But um, what are we looking at when we when we have a landscape that's got lots of um, edible wild things, um, but it's had that intervention um, from humans, as you're saying? I mean, I think we have the same thing here. I don't see how you could not have that there. I, I would think the whole country was, I mean, the, everything that you think is wild over there, my guess is it's actually gone through a couple iterations. You don't, you're not covered with oak forests or, or, uh, tea, uh, what, what is, uh, well, Tilia, Tilia, Lindenberry? Is that yeah. Linden? No, Linden, yeah, Lindenflower, yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we were, we were covered with trees of some sort or another. At one point it was thought that it was all oak, but that's probably more to do with um, the fact that oak drops a lot of pollen and it's better preserved. Oh. Um, whereas Tilia, that, the, the pollen is, is not preserved that well. Um, but yeah, we certainly were covered in, in uh, forests of, of one kind or another. Or, or Well, you can't tell because, again, the pollen blows around. So that it could be that, that we had a lot more grassland than we think. And that's something that's been discussed in recent years that we've possibly had the wild cattle um, producing much bigger clearances and, and much more grassland than we we might have suspected that we had. But mm -hmm. but I have a I have a friend who did his early botanical studies with a with a professor who um, had uh, done a lot of, on interesting varieties of various different species um, that he was convinced were selectively grown. So for example, we have um, black bindweed here, which is very similar to um, buckwheat. The seeds look almost identical to buckwheat, but there are strains of it where the seeds are much, much bigger, and it seems pretty clear that those were um, those were cultivated. Um, and I mean, the interesting thing about that is that black bindweed is is a is still a prolific agricultural weed. So if if we were wise and knew what it was, we would be encouraging that and and perhaps bringing in these larger seeded strains um, because we've got a crop that's growing for free all over the. Uh, the other crop, if we uh, refrain from um, bombing it with herbicides, but I, I, I just wonder whether we could explore what, what, you know, when when we cross the line over into um, domestication and see, we've thought about this a lot, and it seems to me if something can no longer really flourish in a wild ecosystem, then and that domestication has taken it beyond a certain point, and. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in the fact that there's a blurred boundary between that wild and, and cultivated thing. But I really love the idea that, that plants can, can produce a lot of edible substance um, within the context of an actual wild ecosystem, rather than it being a completely artificial um, thing, which, as you're pointing out, requires a lot of inputs. So um, 
you know, as you're talking about, because I know you have elsewhere, you haven't really mentioned it much here, but you're talking about some of these plants being future crops. But do you envisage crops in the sense of this sort of industrial monoculture thing? Or are you thinking of semi-wild landscapes that are really productive, but we're getting involved in encouraging species that, that are productive? I mean, what, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, probably somewhere in between those, but closer to the semi-wild uh, ecosystem-y kind of. It, it's assisted agriculture. Uh, our palm trees wouldn't be here if people hadn't brought them. Yeah. Uh, the certain kinds of cacti, they show up way too close to, to, uh, what used to be, uh, habitation sites and then nowhere anywhere near there. So a lot of these things were just people brought them. And planted them, um, and they they took hold or they didn't take hold. But where they took hold, they really seem to have taken hold well. Uh, there are kinds of agave that don't live anywhere except on the ruins of of old habitation sites. Uh, assisted agriculture, I think, is probably what what the people were doing here. Um, I know when I was a little kid, I used to have all these little cacti that I, uh, you know, I was encouraged to have these little, you know, love these little cacti. They have little fruits on them that, that taste like a candy called Skittles. You guys got Skittles? Yeah, we do. Okay. So they're super sugary and it's the mammillaria cacti. They're, they're tiny little cacti. Um, the fruit in Spanish called chitos or, or cululca uh, in Paipai. And um, there you can grow a lot of them <clears throat> and have a lot of the fruit all just by planting them under your bushes around your yard. Uh, but I, I think that really is the model. Uh, I, I think they're calling it permaculture these days or food forests and things like that, where you intercrop the different species that serve as overstory and understory and the different layers of your yard, all of them having food. Um, Cause that's what we see out, you know, here in the Sonoran desert is, is this kind of, of clumping of, of the different plants. Um, Naturally, well, according to, you know, natural cycles here up until a couple of years ago, it was pretty much you, you could harvest different things except for December. So you're going from January until November, um, and then you got your downtime, uh, in December. But, um, now it's like all year round, uh, you, you've got all these different plants growing in the shade of each other and uh, one of them will have fruit in the springtime and one will have fruit in the summer and another one will have fruit in the late summer, early fall, another in the early winter. So everything, there's always something producing something. Uh, and if, if you compared it to commercial agriculture, uh, you would say, well, that's all wild stuff. 
because it's not in rows and it, I can't harvest it with a, a giant machine. And, and, uh, but if you're looking at a human level, you know, an individual personal level, you're just kind of bowled over by the, the abundance and variety of different, uh, grains and fruits and nuts and, different kinds of roots and, and berries. It's, it's like every season has its, its different produce and, uh, it, it can make it, especially there's two, two times of the year, the, uh, April, May, and then the July, August, September, when there's just too many things to go get, <laughs> uh, you can't keep up. Yeah. So you have to sort of pick your battles. I mean, we we uh, right now we have it relatively easy because it's it's saguaro time. So it's saguaro, mesquite, jojoba, a couple of the cacti, a couple of different kinds of greens. Um, all the pictures that I sent you are things that are are popping right now. Wow. Um, and that's just a, I mean, that's, there are medicinal plants. Um, this is not mushroom time. We did have mushrooms this spring because we had so much rain. Um, things that people don't think are going to grow here, like morels. Um, so we have times for those. Our, our really big mushroom time is usually uh, July, August, September, October. But, um, but we also have a variety of uh, elevations and a variety of different kinds of topography. So uh, there's and there's just too much stuff. Uh, in addition, when you're when you're talking about what did the people do? I mean, did they just leave everything alone? Uh, no, there's actually places where we can see. Um, have you heard of? Um, uh, rock mulch? None. None. Okay. Here in the desert, we've got this uh, phenomenon of, because humans are tall, we don't think of ourselves as super tall, but because we're tall, we don't really notice things that are happening within the, the first couple of inches from the soil up. But in the desert, we've got a wind. There's a, a constant wind. Uh, down at ground level and I mean if you get your face down there on the on the soil you can feel it mm. uh, constantly blowing uh, because probably the temperature difference between the soil and the air and stuff like that but the effect that that has on on seedlings is that it desiccates and dries them out uh, so things can't get a foothold uh, so this is why we say the cryptogamic soil is so essential because it, it keeps the the roots cool and it keeps the soil moist and the, the plants have a living seed bed. But human beings have a really hard time reproducing that because it takes about 250 years to get established. Um, but the native folks, the, the little brown nincompoops, uh, there's a story behind that horrible, horrible name. But anyway... Um, the uh, the Otan people especially, they worked with something called rock mulch. And what you do is you take something small like sand or pea gravel as the lowest layer. And on top of that, you put some small rocks that are bigger. Uh, 
And on top of that, you put some rocks that are bigger. And on top of that, you put some rocks that are bigger. So what you created is kind of a platform that prevents the wind from getting to those little interstitial spaces and the seeds get down in there. You, you broadcast your seeds into that uh, or you plant your seedlings down into that and they're protected from the wind. They're also given a more, uh, 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 how temperate, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, a temperate area that they can live in where the temperature isn't going to go wildly from hot to cold because they've got shade and they've, they, uh, if it's wintertime, it's not super, super cold because the rocks stay warm. Um, and they've got shade from the big rocks. Is that what you mean? From the big rocks. And what happens is the plants grow up through that, yeah. through that rock mulch. So there are areas, especially down by the Gila River, uh, where if you get up in an airplane, you can see for, I mean, it's very easy to see what used to be fields of this stuff. Uh, it looks different from the rest of the ground. And so what you've got is a situation where the people carried in all these different rocks so that they could have, uh, you know, a nice stable agricultural system close to home. Um, Another thing that people did here is called Akchin agriculture. And Akchin is essentially using the swales and the, the hills and the topography to direct the water where you want it. Right. Um, and then planting things in the places where the water is going to go and the nutrients that are coming downstream are going to go. Um, and then you don't do anything else. So there are no big fields, no long rows. And yet the plants are lush, and they're using the using the existing topography, and and uh, uh, so, and then in combination with intercropping, these three methods were the things that were used in southern Arizona, aboriginally, uh, instead of long rows. Uh, they everybody uh, harvested by hand, so it wasn't an issue that the fact that there weren't rows for the mechanical equipment. Um, and it's a system that worked. <laughs> it worked for a long, long time uh, without water. The, the tribes that, that were living along the rivers, when the Western settlers came in, uh, after they were done mining and overgrazing the land, uh, the next thing that they went for were the rivers. So they dammed up a lot of the rivers. So a lot of the tribes that depended on rivers really had a tough go as a lot of people starved because they were used to using the irrigation water from the rivers. Uh, but the tribes that were used to assisted agriculture and using the desert with rock mulch and things like that, they, they did fine. <laughs> Um, these are still methods that work here. Uh, Do you have a sense of um, of like land productivity for an area that's being that's being um, worked like this? Uh, this sort of semi-wild agriculture. There, 
there are studies like that. I'll have to, I, I've got a couple of them someplace. Um, there was a book a long time ago called The Changing Mile, and uh, that author's last name was Turner. Um, and what he did was he took photographs of locations uh, in, I can't remember now what years those were, but it's, it spans a hundred years. And he just showed how things changed uh, in those hundred years. And in there, there's some of that kind of stuff. But yeah. there's so a lot of USDA and uh, different federal agencies have done studies like that. Um, I'll have to look around. I, I can send you some bibliography stuff. I, I don't know if you've come across the work of Jack Harlan at all. He, he did some stuff uh, looking at the, the, the sort of dust bowl areas. Um, and, oh, in like Oklahoma? Yeah, and, and trying to uh, recreate the prairie through re reseeding with native grasses and so on. And he did some experiments with actually harvesting and processing the the, the seed, um, mm -hmm. some of those native species. And whilst it wasn't um, at the same level as you know some of these modern wheat species, it was still pretty respectable. And especially given that these were perennial grasses that didn't need sowing every year and didn't didn't have any investment of um, fertilizers and so on, they were getting a pretty respectable yield per. Um, Per hectare for, for for these wildgrass seeds, um, and I think I think when we when we when we start comparing the fact that industrial agriculture cheats, right, because it's introducing all sorts of stuff from elsewhere to, uh, to end up with the with the final count of how much yield they got, um, I, I I do wonder. Um, I'm just very interested always to see what what how much food are we managing to get off a piece of land when we do it this way as opposed to that way, uh, and especially if we take out the equation that there was no inputs here, we didn't we didn't cheat. <laughs> he was a crop scientist, and he he was he was like a, a bit of a bit of a prophet really. In uh, the 60s and 70s, he was talking about how we're relying on a very small number of crop species. And that it's a disaster just waiting to happen if we, uh, if we, if one of those species got hit with a global kind of, uh, fungus or other disease. So he was very interested in alternative, um, approaches and, and was looking at, um, uh, yeah, all other, other grass species, for example. That was one of the things he looked at. Well, um, I, I started a little farm, um, where I'm growing some of these things. Um, it's only a couple of years now, so it'll be a while before I'll have anything remotely like data. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I tell you though, the, uh, some of them really, some of the plants really surprised me. We, we have plants here. I'm pretty sure in Europe they have barberries, right? Oh yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting. That's, that's, um, funny. That ties in very interestingly, coincidentally with, with, with what I was just saying there about crop diseases of crops, Barbary we used to have. Apparently, it came over in the Neolithic period. Used to be a very common one, but it's the host to a fungus which affects um, a lot of old varieties of wheat. So at a certain point, they went they they were ripping it out of all the hedgerows and burning it. Um, nowadays, the modern varieties of wheat are no longer susceptible to that rust fungus, but um, 
But unfortunately, it's taken its toll on Barbary. It's a very rare species now. I know of one in uh, in Kent. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. It's a sidetrack. But... Okay, I better be careful about what I say. <laughs> <laughs> because um, we have wheat. Believe it or not, um, Arizona is one of the premier uh, heirloom wheat growing places in North America right now. And these are some of these are land races that go back to the conquistadors, what they brought over, like the Sonoran white. And uh, um, I just learned about one this morning that's purple. But um, anyway, the uh, in my tiny little farm, <laughs> it's an acre and a half. Um, I'm growing these barberries. These are native barberries. Um, I don't really know anything about the. The the fungus that they harvest was it like Phytophthora? What was the? I'm afraid I'm than that. I I really don't know. But a quick, a quick, uh, yeah, I hate to say it. <laughs> a quick look online, you should um, easily find out what what species. Okay. Yeah, rust. It's a rust fungus. That's all I know. It affected wheat. Okay. Yeah. Old old variety. So that's that's oh dear. Yes. Okay, but I'm growing these. I'm growing these uh, barberries uh, because it's one of the few things that the chefs here were interested in paying halfway decent money for. Yeah. Uh, a lot of uh, one other problem that we've got is everybody thinks, well, it's all free. <laughs> Everything you forage is free, so why can't you just give it to me for free? Mm. Uh, and that that isn't a horribly sustainable model when. You got to go out and forage this stuff but thought of of all the of all the uh wild things that i could grow uh i'll give these uh it's uh criti no not critigus that's the hawthorn um it's uh hematocarp yeah it's 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 either Berberus or the other one because the genera names have changed recently. Um, anyway, uh, but it's Hematocarpa and uh, beautiful little fruit, delicious. Uh, you can also use the roots uh, in uh, homeopathic medicine. It's very strong stuff. So uh, anyway, so I'm growing these and uh, there's irrigation on this property. I could not believe the reaction of these plants to it's like their their long lost friend or something. Uh, water. Oh my god, look at all this water. <laughs> so they they now grow uh really fast and really big and lots and lots of fruit. Uh, I'm gonna have to keep track, I think, of what the production value is. Uh, when when we're out harvesting them, sometimes we'll sit there picking for about 16 hours. I, that was the, our last session was 16 hours wow. nonstop. Uh, well, it, it's, it's extremely lucrative. I mean, it, it pays for everything else that you did all spring. Um, so, uh, growing them it looks like we're going to end up my my concern is it's going to change the nature of the fruit uh, because life's too darn easy <laughs> they're, they're you know they're at the spa basically and uh and you know hand me another warm towel please kind of uh 
they change the phytochemistry somehow if they don't have to struggle like they usually do. So we'll see. Yeah. But yeah, I haven't. I'm gonna have to look into that that Harlan thing. I don't really know about what the, you know, productive load of the of the territory here is supposed to be for for some of these things. Uh, three interesting questions to to uh, explore. This um, we have to make a case for this, don't we? Um, <laughs> Seems like everything has to be put in economic terms, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it doesn't have to be economics. That I mean, I love the idea that that the way we're going is is may well be that a lot more people get involved in producing food and and people start producing their own food. So there's no cash value on on it. But we do need to know how much food, it, 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 even if we don't put. Um, numbers on it in terms of money but, um. at the end of the summer so uh, kind of kicked off with this last week um, the mesquite pods um, if, if people don't know the mesquite is a tree related to locust trees and uh, tamarind trees and carob trees uh, it's a legume a bean and uh, here in the southwest we've got a variety of different kinds and uh, it is one of the most productive plants that we have uh, it's the tree of life you can use just about every part but the part most people use is, are the pods and the pods uh, have beans in them uh, the uh, the pods themselves are, are pretty much solid carbs, and uh, it's uh, built out of slow sugars, so really good for diabetics. Um, the beans themselves are almost pure protein. Uh, so the product that is usually made out of these, the, the flour, uh, F-L-O-U-R flour, uh, you can... Uh, decide how much protein versus how much carb you want to put in your flour just by separating the beans from the the, uh, the outer husks of the of the pod um, and then recombine so you grind it up and then you recombine uh, it's very sweet very very sweet because of a lot of the sugars tons and tons of calcium lots of iron uh, boron, selenium, a whole bunch of stuff that you need for your hair and your your skin and your teeth and, and uh, just a, an amazing food source. That, uh, when we start in at saguaro harvesting time, which was last week, uh, all the way through the summer, uh, we will end up with a little over two metric tons of, of uh, collection. So, <laughs> if we're going by something like that, uh, which is kind of the high end of the of the uh, productivity scale out in the desert, uh, it's it's ridiculously productive. If, uh, on the other hand, we look at some of the rarer things, uh, you may only get two or three fruit in a whole season. Uh, but again, 
we all together there are 2,500 different ingredients. Um, and that figure's just incredible to me. Like that's just in Arizona State, right? If if I if I take a look at the the artificial lines on the map uh, in that area, and I count up the species and what what are the things that we use? Okay, so for this particular one, we use both the flowers and the fruit. And for this one, we use the root and the leaves. And for this one, we and, and then you estimate, you know, based on what we've harvested before, uh, in a given year. So uh, for us, the year generally starts in July and goes until July. Um, but in a year. Uh, we're using a little over 500 different plants and about 50 mushrooms uh, in 2,500 ingredients. And what I mean by ingredients are uh, flowers, stems, buds, crowns, roots, seeds, uh, just these different parts. So if you can imagine for different plants, the different parts that you can use, all of that tallies together to just about 2,500 different things, different ingredient things. So we're not hungry. <laughs> You're living in a land of plenty. It's kind of hard not to be fat. That's the yep. part of the problem. There's, there's a lot of stuff. Um, some of it is easier to get, uh, to, to harvest than other things. And, um, we kind of take that into account uh, when we, when when a chef wants something from us, barberries is one of the things that that a lot of people have wanted. Um, they're hard to collect. Uh, if you've ever seen a barberry, it's it's got spines in its dreams. I mean, it's it's just all spines every everywhere you look. Yeah, perpendicular, horizontal. It, it spines. And so you're sticking your hands in there <laughs> to get those fruit. They don't shake. You can't shake the tree and get them to fall off. You've got to, got to pull them off, which means you're getting stabbed right. over and over yep. again. Um, so we've learned to I, – I wish I had in, invested money in liquid bandage. Have you seen this stuff? No. Are you laughing? <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Liquid bandage uh, – you you basically paint it between your fingers because that's usually the place that you're getting stabbed that hurts the most uh, between the fingers and under the fingernails uh, so your hands are these weird looking because <laughs> they're covered with this liquid bandage right but at least then you're getting when you're getting stabbed you don't get infected and it it still hurts but you're not bleeding all over everything. Um, so you, you go to all this trouble to pick these things, all right? And then... Uh, For 16 hours. 16 hours, because the, you're there. You're, you're in the location, and here they are. And, and my goodness, even if we only take 10%, it's going to take some time. So uh, we're picking, we're picking, and uh, if you... If you set them out, like we had over, um, we had the Jeep open and back, 
and we had them on trays and these birds <laughs> these birds <laughs> magpies um these birds are i guess they're watching i don't know they're not stupid um if you leave them out there to dry the birds are going to get them okay so you have to be careful but if you if you don't get them to dry they're going to mold up if you when you harvest them if you have like a fanny pack uh, so you've got your fanny pack bum bag whatever and you're putting the let's say you put the the berries in there um, they're, the weight of the berries on top of the berries that you already put in will smash them, will squish them. Yeah. So if you're trying to keep them in a certain form for the for the chefs, uh, that isn't going to do it. <laughs> so you can't carry large quantities of these around, which means you have to keep going back and forth to your your uh, process, processing area, um, which slows you down. Um, then you've got to got to set them in such a way that they're going to start to dry and not mold. Then, as you're you know heading back home, you've got to figure out a way to keep them dry so they don't mold because it's hot, <laughs> right? So you get them home, you've got to you know spread them spread them out and process them so they don't mold. Yeah, you've got right. a series of challenges here. Right. About a, you're going to lose about a third of everything that you pick. Okay. All right. So you've got spoilage. You have to figure into the price of these things. Um, once you get them dry to the right level and they still look like berries, um, you've got about six months that you can hang on to those things. Um, so... Then you've got to go to the people that wanted to buy these things and tell them, if I just figure in this, how many hours it took us to do this, uh, without worrying about anything else, it's going to be XYZ price. And then the chefs will say, and I've actually, this, this just blows me away. The chefs say, well, it needs to be more accessible. I say, what do you mean more accessible? And the, and the guy says, uh, and it was a guy, and the guy says, well, uh, cheaper. And Cheap. I said, <laughs> and I said, well, what do you think would be a fair price? <laughs> and when we figured it out, his fair price was about 25 cents an hour. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, look, it's already accessible. You just have to go get it. But if you want us to go get it, <laughs> And you want it, you want it, you know, shape, uh, uh, plate perfect so that you can just use it. This is what it's going to cost. This is the cost. And did you get your price? Uh, for some things, yes. And for some things, no. And, um, it, this is one of the reasons I'm, I'm not really interested in selling stuff. It, it's like if they, if I had an economy of scale, which may not be possible for a lot of these these things, um, if I had an economy of scale, maybe it would be possible to bring the price down by a half or a third of what I'm asking for. But for most of these things, where else are they going to get them? I mean, it's it's like I take two weeks to make acorn meal, and I had a, a container, uh, I guess it would be about two quarts um 
And I said I wanted 80 bucks because of the amount of time that it took. And, and the man who had said he wanted it balked. Um, so now it, it's like they'll, they'll say things like, well, you're, when you go out and do your stuff, you know, collect your things for your home, you know, your, your home food, why don't you just get a little bit extra for me? And I'm, I'm thinking, I can't. Well, for free. Yeah. Well, either for free or for, for a small fee, you know, and, and I, I just, I can't count on that. And what am I doing to the plants out there by harvesting a bunch of stuff that then does not get used? I mean, that's not just disrespectful. That's, that could be dangerous for the survival of my plant, which I need next year. Um, I need th those things to be there for us. Um, there's still kind of a mentality of um, just-in-time delivery, and they talk a lot about seasonality, but I had – do you know what huitlacoche is? Okay, there's a, there's a kind of mushroom that grows on corn, corn smut. Uh, what is that, Eustilago something? Uh, corn smut – uh, grows in approximately the third week of the development of the corn cob. So it was December 5th. I'll never forget this. <laughs> December 5th. And a chef asked me, uh, he said, I really need uh, fresh huitlacoche, fresh corn smut. And I said, um, let's think about that. <laughs> what? Yeah. It's December. Do you know of any third week stage sweet corn that's, you know, in the field right now? Do you know anybody who has that? And he said, no, but I figured you did. So I contacted a friend down in Oaxaca <laughs> and I found a source. I was amazed to find a source. Um, uh, and it would only cost $90 an ounce <laughs> with the air freight to get it up there. Yeah. So I said to the chef, um, okay, I've got somebody. And uh, here's a picture. He, he sent a picture. And he said, oh, it's beautiful. Yes, I want it. And I said, okay, it's just $90 an ounce. And you want about six pounds. <laughs> So, <laughs> and the chef is like, oh my God, I can't pay them. I said, well, seasonally, though it might be readily available, <laughs> we don't know that for a fact yet here in Arizona, but uh, it's illegal to grow it here. Wow. So it affects the corn. Yeah, people are worried about the corn. So it's illegal to actually grow it on purpose. Um, there are a couple of people getting around that, but you know, that's not a widely advertised sort of thing. Um, but anyway, um, that's, that's what I'm still finding with the majority of the chefs. We're still in real education mode here. Um, so selling a few things, um, I, I don't think it's, kind of right now it will be lucrative it might not even be possible uh, but um, 
even if we're able to sell a few things, all it is is a chef showing off something weird on the on the uh, menu so that they can get that prestige as a as a uh, either a lot of them are taking credit by the way for the foraging um, they'll actually say that they went out and got it kind of thing um, so it's right now I don't know that we're ready yet for a lot of the things um, on the other hand uh, we're starting to see um, cultivated prickly pear uh, is actually it's starting to look like it's becoming a normal food both the the stems uh, the pencas the, the nopales uh, and the fruit the tunas uh, they are they seem to be passing into the the uh, I don't know they're, they're kind of at the stage where you're probably not as old as me I'm, I'm like 60 something um, but I remember when kiwi fruit came yeah kiwi and nobody would eat it because it was this weird hairy thing um, so weird and but you talk to kids now and they don't know when kiwi was not a, an everyday normal sort of thing yeah um, prickly pear is starting to become like that uh, dragon fruit dragon fruit is originally from here um, it was a gentleman from Taiwan like 40 years ago, uh, was just south of here down in Mexico. He took some, uh, hylocereus plants back, cultivated them, turned them. If, if you've ever seen the native, uh, na native, uh, dragon fruit, it's about the size of a golf ball and it's, and it's round and, uh, next to, is dragon fruit a big thing over there? Not in England, no. No? Oh. You've got to have Starbucks over there. We do there, have There are yeah. no Starbucks? In yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that would be illegal. I think that would be a reason for Trump to invade your country. Um, <laughs> if you don't have enough Starbucks in your country. I think we're required by law to have one every 15 feet. Um, they have a drink, a dragon fruit drink. Dragon fruit's really interesting to me because it's the only branch of the cacti family that has caffeine in the fruit. Oh, I see. Right, I'm with you. Right, hence Starbucks. Being in yeah, and I'm wondering, what, yeah, if they knew that when they <clears throat> when they decided that that would be the, the cactus fruit that they would go for. <laughs> but everybody loves the the dragon fruit right now, and so that may may become normal and once they realize that wolf berries are goji berries then they'll probably people will start you know buying a lot of those um but we have a, a a goji berry um here um but it's not native it's because people grew it in the 19th century so it's in, in english it's called duke of argyle's tea plant there's a a duke who planted it in his garden and was making tea with the leaves. Um, and it's spread out all over the place. It's, it's uh, along the coasts. In many areas, you find it grown by the side of the road. Um, and it produces these berries. Yeah, it's Lyceum Chinese, I think, is the... Um, yeah. it, okay, so it's, a, it's a, a reddish-orange berry. Yeah, yeah. Okay, 
when you find it down on the beach and, and such like. Huh. It's not native, but it, it seems to like it here. You've heard of Whole Foods? Yeah. Okay, at Whole Foods, they have goji berries. Um, a package of them has 40 fruit, and they cost $8.99. Right. That's fresh, fresh, fresh. Uh, That's fresh. Fruit, yeah. yeah, fresh is harder for the, for the markets to uh, deal with than the, the dried ones. The dried ones are easy because they can sit on the shelf for a long time, but the fresh ones, so... Yeah, when I have an online uh, an online outlet um, that we sell through um, to goes out to London, so yeah, maybe we should do fresh goji berries. <laughs> well, you could call them Duke of Argyle Tea Plant. See, <laughs> I don't know if it's Chinensis, it's the same species. Yeah, but I would guess if it's grow, grow if yours is growing along the ocean, then it would be different than it would have adapted differently than the. Than the goji that's coming from China, which well, isn't it? If you think about it, it's sandy beaches. It's a bit like the desert. So, uh, yeah, but you've got the sea spray. True. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know that that's a, a, a like we have uh, people. People don't understand this, but Arizona, we are not very far from the Gulf of California. Yeah. So that when I want things, you know what samphire is. Yeah. Yeah, well, we can get samphire. Just trade for it. There's a, a group of people, the Kwapa, the the He people down there, and uh, we go uh, with other natives. Uh, we go to uh, Picacho Peak area of Arizona, which is south of Phoenix, and we trade for stuff with people that come up from the from the south of there, from down. You know, the Klonkak, the Siri people come up, and uh, the Otam people, uh, the Tono Otam, they used to be called the Papago. Um, and then the Klapa and the Klitsan, the human people, they come up, and people trade. And so we can get samphire, and we can get chrythmum. You have yeah. chrythmum? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We call rock that the carrots and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, rock samphire, we call that. Yeah, and so these all these salty things. And... Um, and let's see, what else do we get from those guys? Um, we trade a bunch of stuff that comes from northern Arizona to them because that's the, the, a lot of people don't realize this area. Uh, the people were locavores, but they were also tradeavores. Okay. <laughs> Everybody liked to get stuff from other places. So this exchange that you're describing now is 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 not a new thing. People would have been trading the same things. Yeah, I, I like uh, certain kinds of salt we get from yeah. those guys. And, um, oh, shoot. What we, oh, eggs. <laughs> <laughs> Different kinds of shorebird eggs. They're actually, I think they get most of them from the tidal flats. But um, but it's just a, it's a, the, the samphire and the, the uh, salicornia is another one. Um, we people up here have been eating them for a long, long time. So a lot of people are surprised that that's part of the the uh, you know, like people have recipes for these things. And they say, restaurant trade trend thing. Yeah, they they thought well, you know they won't know what that is, kind of thing. But yeah, um, 
people around here eat things that get traded from all the way from California and then from New Mexico and coming down from Utah. Uh, the pinion pine, uh, the nuts, get those things. And, and uh, from Chihuahua and Mexico, there are people that come up here. Um, so all of that stuff is still intact. People are still using all of that. Thank you for listening to this week's Worldwide Podcast, and apologies for the slightly abrupt ending. The reason for that is that Mark and I carried on talking for some time afterwards, but it was all centred around some photographs that he'd sent through, uh, which just turned out to be a really interesting discussion. Um, there's lots of uh, Arizona native wild plants, um, and also discussion of traditional harvesting methods. Uh, there's people there using the traditional methods and traditional tools, and we thought that actually the best place to present that material will be in a slideshow on on youtube so that's what we've done um so it's kind of bonus material for the podcast so if you if you uh, click on the link on the podcast page or otherwise just search youtube for the worldwide podcast it should come up for you okay that's it for this week's podcast and we'll be back next week <laughs>